I'm going to make a statement that I hope you believe already, but you might need to hear it again. This will be the most important message you have heard all week. You've listened to a lot. You've watched a lot of news. You've probably spent hours and hours and hours intaking different messages. This infinitely exceeds all of those. And so just by nature of the fact of how important what I'm about to say from Scripture is, I think it's best that we prepare our heart to receive it and to listen to it and to ask, is this truly the message that God has given us from his word? And so let's pray together and ask God to do his good work. Father God, we so readily accept other news and other media and other uh, messages. Father, may we now be thirsty for this message. Lord, we have drank deeply of the news media. We have drank deeply of the headlines. And yet, Father, we're sick. We're still thirsty. Father, what a great week to illustrate just how sufficient your water is. And how muddy and dry and disgusting and poisoned the other mud holes are. Lord, I pray that you will help us to repent from digging cisterns for ourselves, repent from drinking from mud holes, and that we'll come back to the river, Father. Lord, at every turn, you have shown us just how disappointing humans are and how disappointing we ourselves are and how we all fall short of the glory of God. And yet there is one, there is one, Father, who has come to save us and bring you into your presence. So now I pray, Father, that these dear, sweet people will see him clearly in the text. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Two people walk into the same room and sit at opposite sides. The person on the right openly doubts this whole Christianity nonsense and has often been overheard saying that she simply does not know how a person can live their life according to the teachings of some radical rabbi who got himself crucified. Even on her best days, the woman scoffs at the idea of a messianic king. In our modern day, who needs or even has time for a savior, she often tells people. Now on the other side of the room, on the left, says a man who has attended church since he was a child. He has read the Bible and agrees with his teaching, and yet the man finds himself constantly bogged down in fear and anxiety. He watches the news and quivers. He sees the stock markets ebb and looks at his bank account with angst. Day in and day out, he openly exudes an air of despair and trepidation, all while claiming Christ as a savior. savior. Now look at, th- at them. You may think they are completely different, right? They sit at two opposite ends of the room. For one thing, the secular woman and the fearful man hold very different viewpoints about Christianity. However, a closer inspection reveals that these two people have more in common than it may seem. Both people, though sitting on opposite sides of the room, sit in the same room of distrust in Jesus. To be sure, the lady may be utterly opposed to Jesus and the other okay with Jesus. Nevertheless, whether it be the outright rejection of Jesus as seen in the woman or the man's consistent distrust of Jesus's sovereignty... Both attitudes are rooted in the same unbelief. I hope you've come to hear a message for you. I will not diagnose what happened in DC. I will diagnose our reaction to it. You will not hear left or right from this pulpit right now. You will hear only a message from the kingdom of God. And how God's people should respond in Matthew 15 and 16. You will see by the end of this text that true faith in Jesus is not merely opposing reject the opposite of rejecting Jesus as the son of God. 
I don't know anyone in this room today, you've driven through the snow because you obviously have some form of affirmation that Jesus is the son of God. But true faith goes beyond just merely not rejecting him as the son of God. True faith is a trust in Jesus throughout the day to day life. It is a practical faith in Jesus. It is an active faith in Jesus. It is a faith that prays, a faith that evangelizes, a faith that looks to Jesus throughout the day to day life in a way that is consistent with who he is. He is not only the king of the cosmos, he's the king of your every living moment. He's not just the king over the world. He's the king of Wednesday. And yet so often we forget that, don't we? Sure, he's the king of the world. Sure, he's the king of the world. But what about my problem right now in this moment? Well, I hope you will see what Jesus says in your situation here in a minute. In Matthew 15, 29 through 31, we find Jesus doing exactly what we would expect the, Jesus, the Messiah to do. He stations himself next to the Sea of Galilee, and the crowds come. They bring with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and others who suffer various other ailments, and they put them at his feet. It's a humble posture to sit at somebody's feet, and by placing the sick love, their sick loved ones at Jesus' feet, they are acknowledging their need and his ability to help. They need his healing touch, his gentle word to make them whole. Whether we know it or not, all people sitting in this room, all people sitting in D.C., all people sitting in China, all people sitting in Russia need and are in desperate need for this same healing hand. Only he can heal us from our fall. And as is seen in this text, he is more than willing to do so. When the lame come, when the blind come, when the crippled come, when the mute come and are laid at his feet, what does he do? He heals them. Verse 31 says that the crowds wondered. Literally, they marveled. They were awestruck at this. It was silent. When they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind sing. And how fitting was it that they marveled? They were seeing something that only the Old Testament described would happen. What was happening was incredible. The hope of Isaiah 35 was being played out right there before their very eyes. Isaiah 35, if you have read it, you know, gives us the hope of restoration. It's through the prophet that God promises a day that the wilderness will rejoice. The wilderness, the desert, just like where Jesus is now. People will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Why? Because according to Isaiah, God will come to save his people. And when God comes, listen to this. The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. And so reading this promises, this, this promise, what are we to make of the fact that it is with Jesus that rejoicing comes to the wilderness? What are we to make of the fact that it's because of Jesus that the blind see, that the deaf hear, that the lame walk, that the mute speak? It is through Jesus's work that people see the glory of God and glorify him. There can only be one sufficient conclusion to this fact. In Jesus, God has visited his people in the wilderness. God has come to his people in the desert and has brought with him the long awaited restoration. Now the fact that people see Jesus's work and immediately subsequently glorify God demonstrates just how closely Jesus's work and God's work are in Matthew's gospel. They're not just separate works. This, this, when Jesus works, God is at work. When Jesus works, God is glorified. Jesus's healing of the sick and the broken displays the glory of God and thereby shows that all the promises that God said he himself would do are finding their yes and amen in Jesus alone. Now, the point in making this account is that if you look closely enough at Jesus and his work in Matthew, the person and work of God are clearly evident, clearly evident. You look to Jesus, you see God. You don't see some Jewish rabbi, you see God. Whose very hand makes this man born in paralysis, stand up and walk. And because of this, because they see God, 
the focal point of this moment on this mountain is not the political leaders of the time. You don't read anything about what Pilate was doing on this day. You don't read of anything that was happening in Jerusalem or the riots that might've been happening on the temple Mount that day. You don't read anything. There, there, there's, there's nothing interrupting. The, the reader at this moment is invited to partake in the marvel of who Jesus is. And as we read it, no news headlines should interrupt the silent awe of this moment. No politician should be stealing the spotlight. No one, no, no COVID, no pandemic should be taking our attention. No fears intruding into this holy place. No, on this mountain, we are invited to set our eyes and our hearts in all of the one who makes the lame walk in the blind sea and to set our eyes on him alone. My friends, when was the last time you just sat and were quiet? I think the saddest tragedy of 20 and 21 is some of us have proven that we just cannot stop talking. Sometimes it takes you to turn everything off and to sit still and know he is God. When was the last time you did that? No noise, no phone, no TV, just a back porch, a cup of coffee and the noise of outside. When was the last time you stood in a cold winter day and watched the snow fall, breathe in the cold, crisp air and go, my God made that snowfall. My friends, we are noisy people. <laughs> I sure hope that was my son. I'm not really sure who that was. That is Car- Carlos's son. He's, he's early. That's good. Amen. Amen. My friends, nobody's telling you not to speak. Nobody's telling you not to share your opinion. Nobody's telling you not to stand for truth, but somebody is telling you every once in a while, be quiet. (laughs) Just, just stop for a moment for every thousand things that you say. Do you ever just take a few moments just to be quiet and sit with God? And remember that whatever it is that you're about to say, whatever it is that you're about to get angry at, whatever it is that you're about to post, whatever it is you're about to text, whatever it is that you're about to have a conversation about, that it is still God who reigns despite whatever it is you're going to say. And sometimes it's good just to sit still. My friends, we miss so much of what God does because we talk so much about what people do. We miss so much of the holy moment on the mountain. We miss the fact that lame are walking, that blind are seeing, that deaf are hearing, that mute are speaking. We miss the Messiah because we are focused on the mania. And the reality of it is, is that this moment on this mountain, you are invited to leave that at the door and bask in the truth of Jesus. Our savior is the one who has brought Isaiah 35's restoration. And that fact alone deserves your silent, quiet, awestruck worship. Just to stand in awe of who he is. If this healing work was not enough to sufficiently prove who he was, he was sitting there. He was actively proving to people that he was the king. He was the one who would bring the restoration. He's doing the things that God himself would do. So all these people are seeing this. And who is this man that does the work of God? Who is this man who accomplishes promises that God said he would do? Well, in verse 32, he gives us a nail in the coffin for who he is. It says this in verse 32. Jesus says to his disciples, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Here we have someone who sees the hungry crowd and has the compassion to feed them. Does that remind you of anything in the old Testament? Hopefully it reminds you of our Advent series. Hopefully it reminds you of Ezekiel 34, where God promises to send a new David, a shepherd who will have compassion on the sheep 
and will feed the hungry sheep, will not let them go hungry. And so what Jesus does next, if you're reading this and you're paying attention carefully to the text, this whole, this whole text should be jogging your memory. We've read this before, haven't we? Doesn't it sound exactly what Jesus did in Matthew 14? Jesus fed the crowds twice. First was the 5,000. This time was the 4,000. Two different places, two different situations, two different numbers of loaves and fish. Jesus is doing again what he has done before. Here again, we have a large crowd gathered around Jesus in the desert. Again, Jesus is unwilling to send them away hungry. And again, the disciples are confused as to how they will have enough bread. Now, given these parallels, the disciples question, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed such a crowd? It seems a little odd, doesn't it? Don't you expect at least one of the disciples to say, no worry, guys. He's done this before. I know exactly what he's about to do. Surely someone would speak up and say, hey, quit fretting. Hey, tell Thomas to get out of the plum tree. We got the bread back here. You would expect somebody to say, just stop moving and let Jesus do what he does. Let Jesus do what he's done before. And yet the disciples like us, we can hate on the disciples as much as we want. Like us, the disciples are a forgetful crew. My friends, we are spiritually amnesiatic people. We don't remember the grace we were given five minutes ago. Sometimes it's good to be reminded that the same God of this minute was the same God of five minutes ago, was the same God of five years ago, was the same God of 50 years ago, 500 years ago, 5,000 years ago. He's the same God. Jesus, as he did in Matthew 14, has the disciples bring the meager victuals. In, in this case, it's seven loaves and a few fish. And he commands the crowds to sit down, which again in Greek is a command to sit at the table. Again, you can hear some chuckles. They're in the middle of the desert place. He says, he rings the dinner bell and says, come to the table. So they all sit down and they recline at the table. And by saying it, Jesus is showing that I'm going to feed them. He gives thanks for the food. He breaks the bread and the fish, and he gives them to his disciples to distribute among the crowd. And as happened in Matthew 14, the people all ate and were full, satisfied. They couldn't fit another piece of bread in their mouth in the desert. Could not fit another piece of bread in their mouth. And there were leftovers, which points to Jesus' abundant provision. Again, in reading this, we are left asking, who is this that satisfies hungry people who have no food in the desert? And again, we're reminded of Psalm 78, verse 29, in which it is Yahweh, the God of Israel, who saves his people, feeds them in the wilderness. And again, they all ate and were full. Now in this light, Jesus does what Yahweh God did for Israel in the Old Testament. Through his compassion, he proves that he's the long-awaited shepherd. Through his feeding, he proves that he is king. He, he provides meat and bread. He is Yahweh feeding his people in the desert. So here we have it. Let's just sum it all up. The blind seeing, the lame walking, the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the hungry fed, even in the wilderness, they all serve as signs of who Jesus is. He's doing what God does. So who is Jesus? Jesus is what? God. Plenty of signs there, right? They serve as evidence of who he is and that he is the God who has come to bring restoration. Yet, even with these amazing, can you just imagine that a family member of yours who has lost their eyesight, they can't see that a man touches them and now they can see. Can you just imagine of that one instance of how amazing that would be? And yet Jesus is popping out healings like they're candy. And yet people were like, mm, I don't know. Need some more proof. There's people that are actually saying at this point, not, not enough, Jesus. We want more. We want to see a little bit more before we finally decide that you're God. We see this um, in the very next text. One would think that it would be enough to see Isaiah 35 signs coming to life in Jesus' ministry for people to say, yep, that's the king. Let's worship him. Let's 
commit ourselves to him. And yet it was not enough for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Matthew 16, one says, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, initially you may be tempted to sympathize with the Pharisees. What's so wrong with them asking for a sign who hasn't at one point or another thought that maybe a sign or two might be just the thing to kickstart your faith in the gear. And yet the Pharisees and Sadducees are not asking because they are genuinely considering whether Jesus is the Messiah. For one thing, they've had plenty of signs already. They again, only need to look at the lame guy who just got up and walked. They need to look at the blind guy who's now seeing. They need to see the mute man who's now speaking. They have heard of his works. The very same works that in Matthew 12, 24, they outright reject as the work of the devil. So they've seen enough. Second, Matthew gives us a hint into what the Pharisees real motivation was. He says that they came to test him. Perazzo in Matthew's gospel. There are only two beings who test Jesus. You ready for this? Satan, Matthew four and the Pharisees. They're the only ones who come to Perazzo Jesus to test Jesus. Is an altogether devilish request. They're, they're doing nothing more than what Satan did on the mountain when he says, they're coming to him. If you are the son of God, then give us a little sign from heaven. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? I don't necessarily care. The request for a sign from heaven is nothing more than devilish goading that ignores the evidence right in front of them. My friends, We humans are hard-hearted, wicked, blind people. Such were you before you were saved. Do you realize that? Some of us sitting in this very room were the very same pharisaically blind people who were like, if you are the son of God, knock that glass of water over. Jesus answers them. When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be a stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. If he was standing here today, he would say, you all know that snowing when you see snow starting to fall. And yet you can't read the events of what's going on and see what I'm doing in the background. They're blind. In other words, when they see the sky, they need no other evidence to predict the weather and forecast when storms are coming. They've got the evidence that they need. They have the material they need to make a solid prediction. And yet they see the signs that the blind are coming to sight, that the lame are walking, and they themselves are blind to the fact that the messianic age has dawned in Jesus, that the king has come. They're altogether blind to this. Friends, we like them as much as we like to give ourselves a lot of credit, we tend to be terrible at seeing the truth of spiritual realities. We all like to be commentators. And yet none of us really comment all that accurately because there's not a whole lot of scriptural text behind what we say. We claim to have sight and we forget that we don't even have our glasses on. My friends, if if we can just for a moment, it's by the grace of God and by his word and by his intervening eye opening that anyone ever sees the truth of Christ in this kingdom. You simply cannot, you are not adequate to know what's going on in the times unless you are utterly dependent on God for it. Due to their obstinate rejection and their blindness, Jesus refused to placate. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. The adjective adulterous is interesting here because it's used in the Old Testament of idol worshipers, the bell worshipers, the ones that, that basically stood on Mount Carmel and said, hey, Elijah, prove to us that God is God. They, I mean, that's, that's the adulterous generation who says, we haven't seen enough, give us more. We want more signs. And what they do is they kind of relegate Jesus to some kind of sideshow act that's meant to wow them into belief. As if God's just some kind of trickster, some kind of pocket magician. 
We want more. We want to see more. We want more proof that you're king. Jesus says, no sign will be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. Now, what is the sign of Jonah? Jesus explained in Matthew 12, 39 through 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What is he talking about? You want proof that I really am the son of God? You're going to kill me. You're going to bury me. And three days later, I'm going to come out of my grave. You may be sitting here wondering, okay, you make a lot of claims. Jesus is the king of the cosmos, really. Jesus is the king of it all. Jesus is the king of every moment. Jesus is the king of what happens in D.C. Jesus is the king of Donald Trump and king of Joe Biden. Jesus is the king of all that. Really? Well, what proof do you have? His tomb is empty. What more do you need? He's not dead. Oh, I don't know about that, though. I I lost the vote, you know. It's been a rough year. COVID's really kind of gotten me all shaken up. My friends... Jesus is alive, and that's all the proof you ever need that he is the king who was promised. It's an amazing promise. They only need to wait and see what happens when he dies. You know, if I were one of the Pharisees, I hope, I I hope I would have the grace to say, you know what, we just crucified the guy. (laughs) Let's see what happens. And they remembered it too. They said, he said that tear this temple down three days later, I'll build it up. And so they knew That in three days, something significant might happen. They put guards outside of his tomb. And guess what? With all the guards, with all the seals, with everybody standing around, guess what? Boom! Tomb blew open. And Jesus is alive. I think it's important in Matthew's gospel that Jesus does not do what so many of us do. He does not despise his upcoming suffering. Do you realize that our master and savior suffered and welcomed his suffering? He, it says that he looked to joy at the cross that was to come. Most of us are looking ahead and going, ah, I don't want that. Jesus wanted the cross because he knew with the cross came the tomb. And then when the tomb came, he knew that that would be the platform on which all would definitively see the glory of God. My friends, do you have the same mindset when it comes to suffering? Yeah. Life's tough. You might die. You will be buried. And then your tomb will open and the world will see just how true God was to his promises. Jesus doesn't despise the cross. He looks forward to the cross and he says, you Pharisees, even who hate me, will see definitively that I am the son of God when my tomb stands empty. Now, I I think... It's easy at this point to hate on the Pharisees. We, we look at these Pharisees like, yeah, look at those Pharisees. They, and their unbelief is despicable. We look at them as a political party, right? That we hate. And we'll leave the political party unnamed. Okay. We look at them like that. Like, oh, these despicable Pharisees and their unbelief. My friends, what do you do when you see the same lack of faith in Jesus' disciples? This was interesting in my mind. Why add on the text that follows this interaction with the Pharisees? To be sure, the Pharisees might be on one side of the room in their obstinate rejection. They hate Jesus. However, the disciples, at least in this instance, sit in the same room of faithlessness. They don't hate Jesus. They just don't trust him. They're okay with Jesus. They've seen lots of good things. They sit on the other side of the room of the Pharisees. But guess what? It's the same room of unbelief. The same room of distrust. And in this, we are given the subtle message that your subtle daily distrust in Jesus's power to control things is the same leaven as the worst atheistic person's rejection of Jesus. How do we see this in the text? I get that's a big claim. And so let's prove it. When the disciples reached the other side of their journey, they realized that they had forgotten to bring any bread with them. It's kind of ironic having seen that Jesus just had all these leftovers, right? 
with the 4,000. This would essentially be like planning a trip to the Minnesota boundary waters and realizing that you forgot the bear bag back at camp and the bear bags where all the food is. And so you're out in the middle of the wilderness. You're like, uh, whoops. I mean, it's, it's a, uh, I I remember this. Um, we went camping in the Minnesota boundary waters this last year. I have a video of us after probably five hours of rowing or so, I don't know how long we were rowing, but we were rowing in the canoe and we, we get all of our stuff in there. We're getting ready to think about what campsites we want. And Phil says, I hope we brought the tents. You hope? <laughs> really? We don't, we don't know. <laughs> like, like, and he just casually gets into the, t- and he's into the, into the canoe. He's like, I wonder, is it my, maybe it's in the black bag. And just casually rowing along. I'm like, we might not have tents. I'm like inwardly freaking out here. Are we going to be bare grills? Are we going to be eating one another by the end of the week? That's essentially what happens in the ancient days when you don't take care of your food and water. You might starve to death. You might die of thirst. The fact that they had forgotten bread was no small deal. It was a big deal. It was a due cause of anxiety. It's not, it's not difficult to imagine the growing tension on the scene. Did Peter punch Andrew in the arm and say, you said you'd get the bread, you dummy. Does, does Matthew pull out his parchment and start making calculations how far they can get before they have to decide who they're going to eat? And then he looks sideways at Thomas. It'll probably be him. Besides, Thomas is already sitting down saying we're all going to die. I mean, you, you, can just, you can just imagine that's probably what's happening at this moment. These disciples are just losing their ever-loving mind because they forgot bread. Jesus, knowing that his disciples were missing out on a really, really, really important truth, warned them. Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, if I'm Peter at the moment, I'm thinking... Jesus has done gone crazy. He's talking about leaven of the bread and Pharisees. Who cares about that? We got no bread. What does that have to do with anything about us lacking bread? Apparently they didn't see the point because they're like, all right, Jesus, Andrew, try to figure out where we can buy some bread. They went back to deliberating in the fact that they had no bread. So Jesus seeing these disciples all huddled up whispering, where are we going to find bread? Get us bread. We need to have some bread. Does anybody have any money? Where are we going to buy it? Can we kill a fox? You know, like they're all debating this. And Jesus interrupts again. Oh, you have little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you have gathered? Or the seven loads for the 4,000, how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, according to Jesus, the disciples had forgotten something much more than bread. They had forgotten the bread giver. Having seen so much of Jesus' ability to provide abundance out of nothing, now they were failing to trust Jesus. Jesus fed 5,000. Jesus fed more than 4,000. Just 4,000 men, not including men, uh, not including women and children. And now it's just the 12 of them in a boat, and they're like, wonder, I wonder where we're going to get bread. Sure, he did all those things, but who's to say that he will do that for his disciples now? Or even an even more wicked thought, who's to say that he can do that for his disciples now? In this, the disciples were not much different from the Pharisees in their blind faithlessness, in their disbelief. Because of their unbelief, the Pharisees saw the signs and remained blind about Jesus' true identity. Yeah, we see what's happening. We see the lame walking. We see the blind seeing, but we still don't know. Is he really the king? And the disciples do the same thing. They had personally witnessed Jesus satisfy thousands, thousands of hungry people in the middle of the desert twice. Where are we going to find bread? They were essentially doing the same thing as the Pharisees, not trusting him, waiting for more evidence, needing to be more convinced. 
they were dabbling in the teaching of the Pharisees, which though on the surface looked righteous, I mean, they were after all walking with Jesus, but still in reality, they were completely void of faith. Let's consider now, this is my, this is my most painful part of the sermon because I have had to take myself to task this week. I watched the news headlines on Wednesday. I watched both news me. I don't ever watch the news most of the time. And this week I turned on as many channels as I could just to see what was happening. My heart quivered. My mind wondered. I saw my friends get angry. I saw my, my pastor friends get angry. I saw people losing their minds over what was going on. So let's just consider the last seven days in a mere seven days. 2021 has shown you that it has no more to no more bread to offer you than 2020 did. If anything, it feels like it could be an even worse famine than it was last year. Suddenly you see it's 2021 and Oh no, we have no bread. Our political strongmen are disappearing. Our economy looks like it's shaky and tanking. The pandemic lingers and people we know and love are struggling. Where are we to find bread? And the spirit of Jesus in us whispers, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You answer back, yeah, Jesus, I hear you. And then you continue your own anxious self deliberating and planning. Okay, self. Yourself says, hmm. And you say, where am I to find bread? And you go about your anxious search. You look for it in all these other places. Maybe the next election. Maybe the next job. Maybe the next promotion. Maybe the next paycheck. Maybe the next house. Maybe the next city. Maybe the next church. Maybe the next wife. Maybe the next husband. Maybe the next kid. And you keep searching for bread under all these political rocks and sociological uh, uh, pantries, hoping that maybe the pantry of social media might just have a morsel of bread for you. And in so doing, we have forgotten all that is true about who Jesus is. He is the king. He gives bread. When there is no bread, he gives bread in the desert. He gives bread when there are no restaurants open. He gives bread when there is no bread. He healed those who had unhealable disorders. Doctors could not stop the woman's bleeding. He did. He opened eyes that on their own would never be opened. He made people speak whose mouth should have never spoken. He caused the lame to walk who by all human reasoning should have never walked. He raised a four-day dead Lazarus whom no one could resuscitate. Far more importantly, he saved you. My friends, we look at these challenges in 2021 and sometimes we forget just how unbridgeable the chasm was between us and God. My friends, (laughs) the events of 2021 is no sweat on God's brow. It is far more unlikely to you, a good moral Texan, to have reconciliation with God than it is for all of our nation to get along. It would be easy for God to snap his finger and unify everyone. It is far more impossible to give you a relationship as a sinner with him. What's the greater work? Think about it. We were rebels, sons of serpents, rebellious, hostiles toward God, dissenters, protesters against the Lord himself. We stormed the Capitol building of heaven many, many times over. We sat, not in Nancy Pelosi's chair, but on God's throne, pretending to be king. We did that as sinners. Every sinner has done that. If sin is to ungod God, if the goal of sin is to dethrone the God of heaven, every single person in this room has tried to storm the capital of heaven and sit in a chair that did not belong to them. And you deserve the wrath of God for it. 
we were dead and doomed to stay in that death for all eternity. We were blind and doomed to remain in our blindness. We were lame and doomed to remain spiritually in our spiritual paralysis. And yet Jesus did the impossible. He bridged the unfathomable chasm by his own death on the cross. In taking the place of sinners, he changed our insurrection into an inheritance, our rebellion into sonship. Our rightfully wrathful judge became father. And we who are once dead have been raised to new life. And because of his resurrection, we too have been raised and seated together with Christ right now to gulp the overflowing cup of God's kindness for all eternity. Now, here's some questions for us. Having tasted and seen such great, sweet grace that was accomplished at the cross to see that the impossible was made possible in Christ and that was secured at his resurrection. How is it that we now distrust Jesus' power over all things? I mean, Jesus didn't say with any qualification, uh, it didn't limit his authority with any qualification, did he? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and earth. How is it that we respond with such fear and anger? That's, that's the thing that I don't get. I don't mind people posting. I don't mind people texting. I don't mind people speaking. What I do mind is I just don't see how consistent it is that we as Christians respond in fear. Now that death itself has been beaten. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you give your opinion or you say, I don't agree with this policy or this politician makes no sense to me. That, that's all fine. What I don't get is the anger and fear of people who, if you just look at their lives, it's like, have they forgotten the gospel? Is this really the end for you? Is this really it? Is all really lost? By our own reactions to day-to-day events, and I'm concluding my, I didn't say you or your, I said our, by our reactions to -to day-to-day events, one would think that we had no hope, and God forgive us that Jesus is still dead. Katerina von Bora, Martin Luther's wife, uh, Luther was prone to discouragement, to depression. I mean, you talk about hostility and oppression. The entire Holy Roman government was out for his blood. They wanted him dead. He had defied Pope. He had defied Prince. He had claimed he's the one that helped us chart away with solus Christus and Christ alone, solus fide and faith alone. So, so he's the one that charted the way. Everyone wanted this guy dead. And one day he just comes in and he's, in his own church, some things are disappointing and he's discouraged. And he just said to Katerina, says, it feels like God's dead. It feels like God's dead. So he goes off to the church. He gets called away to help someone in his church. And he comes back and she's dressed in funeral attire. And typically when you put on a shroud back in those days, it's a sign somebody's died. It's a time of grieving. So you put the shroud on and he immediately goes, who died? And she goes, well, uh, Luther, you said this morning that God did. So I thought I would take some time to grieve. My friends, look at your last 24, 48 hours, your last seven days. And do you see anywhere in your text, the message Jesus lives? I'm not talking about in your political stances. It's It's totally fine. Your political stances may be totally fine and upright and good. Your political stance is not the message Jesus lives. There are absolutely lost Muslims who agree with your political stance, but do not agree with your message. Jesus lives. Do we act as if God is dead? Do we decry the secular movement? You know, the secular, I mean, I've just seen it to where we're all decrying our nation that is now, now throwing off the chains of God. They don't want God. Who's God to tell us what gender we can be? Who's God to tell us who we can marry? Who's God to tell us who should live? And we decry that. And yet, instead of addressing a secular world in a biblical way, we address the secular world with secular means. That the way to 
solve the problem of the world, making God irrelevant is to then find a human solution. My friends, when you pray, when you share the gospel, I want to, I want to be very clear about this. When you pray, when you share the gospel, when you read your Bible, when you're open and, and explicit, not just subtle, explicit about your faith in the resurrected Jesus, you are far more effective than anyone who posts anything, any given day. Just the reality of it. Not against this posting, not against this talking, not against this weeping, not against us being upset at some of the things. What I am against is we are utterly silent about the message of the gospel. And therefore everything we say is utterly ineffectual and insufficient. You bring God onto the political scene. Now we can get the work. You bring Jesus into the room. Now let's see things happen. The blind might see when you look to Christ. The blind won't see by you getting angry and yelling at them. The words watch and beware are important for us. They're in Greek. They're called present active imperatives, which means that it's something that you have to keep doing. Jesus didn't say, Hey, watch for now. And then one day the danger will pass. And he says, watch and keep watching and keep watching and keep watching. Beware and beware and beware and beware. Every single moment we are, we are incredibly bipolar spiritual people. Sunday we're refreshed by the faith. We, that was great. Great word of God. Great message. Love the teaching of scripture by Monday, we turn on the news and the whole new series of fears and panics and angry frustrations assail us again. By Tuesday, if not sooner, we start searching for bread underneath new political rocks and social media pantries, or worse, we simply resign ourselves to starve for the week. All the while, while our bread giver is standing right there. It's a sad tragedy. My friends, in essence, what we do when we respond to things like we saw this week with we've got to do something or we've got to move or I've got to figure this out or I've got to figure out how there's going to be bread. I've got to restore bread. When you do that, you're basically telling Jesus, Jesus, I I know you can give bread. Stand back and let me solve this bread shortage. You can't. You won't. Time has proven uh, time and time again that you can't and you won't. When are we going to realize that the strongest ally that we have and the only ally we need is our savior? <laughs> Wednesday was crazy, right? I mean, I, I mean, it doesn't matter what your opinions of who they were or whatever. It was just crazy. When have we ever seen that happen in our lifetime? My friends in the courtroom of heaven, It was just Wednesday. Jesus is still on the throne. So what do we do then? I don't want to sit here and yell at you for not believing in Jesus without giving some kind of hope filled application. In Mark nine, a father brought his son to Jesus's disciples in hopes that they could heal him. The disciples failed. They couldn't heal him. They try, they try, they try. They couldn't heal him. And so Jesus says, what's going on? The, the man comes and he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus says in the very next verse, uh, if you can. And then he goes on to tell the man that is all things are possible for the one who believes and implicitly in him, all, all things are possible for the one who believes in him. The man being duly corrected, rightfully corrected, then says, I believe help my unbelief. And Jesus wastes no time. He heals the man's son. Now, can you imagine the way that we sometimes come to Jesus? Jesus, if you can help us. If you can feed us, if you can strengthen us, if you can give us hope, if you can give us water, if you can give us sleep. And all the while, just like, if you can, you see, we still don't get it, do we? It even goes beyond if he can to a matter of he did. 
And because he did, and because it's finished, we live in that finished work of Christ. When Jesus stands there ready to give bread and you see you have no bread, when you stand there and you see that your son's still not healed because Jesus' disciples have failed, men have failed, you're disappointed in men, I pray you don't then go somewhere else and look for a new doctor. I pray at that moment you just fall on your knees and say, will you help my unbelief? I can preach it all day. You are the one that's going to have to allow the spirit to work in your life to make changes in your life. You're the one that's going to have to accept the humble posture to say, you know, you're right. I've not done the things I've said. The things I've done are not absolutely wrong, but they are void of the gospel in different ways. You're right. I, I may not be losing my mind and going crazy and I may not be thinking suicide or anything like that, but you're right. Wednesday was utterly scary and I did doubt the sovereignty of God. My friends, it's better for you just to admit that your faith is lacking and to pray to the one who can help it. Help my unbelief. I don't know what next week holds. I don't know what January 20th holds. I don't know what July holds. I don't know any of these things. I don't know. I know one thing. Jesus is king. And so I can sleep. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that in the midst of this crazy week, Father, in the midst of this desert in which we now live, that you will feed your people. Father, forgive us for doubting Jesus. Forgive us for losing our mind in in fear and anxiety. Forgive us for the anger. Forgive us for the frustration. Forgive us for trying to solve problems we can't solve on our own. Forgive us for looking to weaker deliverers. Forgive us for looking to weaker helpers. Forgive us for doing all these things, Father. God is absolutely correct. We have a responsibility. But Lord, will you equip us and help our faith so that now we can actually do the real responsibility we have? Father, I pray that this church will be mobilized to be a beacon of the gospel. That is why we're here and why you have put us here. Will you help us, Father, to have the faith to see Jesus as king and to live like it? To speak about it. To pray it. To hope it. To bask in it. To live in it. To drink it in. And even while the whole world is starving, Lord, let us be full of the bread we have found in Jesus Christ. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.